Hi, this is Perla Cavazos, and I'm interviewing Bobby Garza Hernandez, formerly Bobby Enriquez. It's June 30th, 2012. Okay, Bobby. Put that right in there. Okay. What do you want to tell me? You need the, you need the questions. Okay. Um, so let's, can you spell your name for us, please? Mm-hmm. B-O-B-B-I-E, and then Garza, G-A-R-Z-A, hyphen, Hernandez, H-E-R-N-A-N-D-E-Z. Known in perpetuity to some people as Bobby Enriquez, because that was uh, my former husband's uh, last name that I kept until I remarried 10 years ago. Do you want to tell, let's start by telling me a little of um, when and where you were born. I was actually, um, I was actually born in Buda, Texas because the hospital in San Marcos had, uh, had suffered a fire and there was damage to the, uh, to the hospital. So my mother had to go all the way to Buda for me to be born, but uh, otherwise I would have been born here in San Marcos. And, but I grew up here, my parents, born and raised here. We're uh, a generational family here in San Marcos. What year were you born? 1954. So when did you move to Austin and in what part of city, what part of the city did you live? I moved to Austin uh, right after I graduated from high school in uh, 1972. I uh, I moved up there, started going to school, and then I married that same uh, summer. And we uh, purchased a home and lived in Oak Hill when there was nothing out there except a truck stop and a country grocery and market. That was it. There were no no subdivisions. Mm -hmm. There was, uh, it was just free, big free country. Did you go to UT or a I, what school did I you went I took some classes at UT but I was going to ACC and I actually I took a uh, a 9 month course at a business school uh, uh, one of the certification programs and I got certified as a medical transcriber and I did that thinking that would put me through school but uh, actually I never really used that that certificate. I did use some of the skills I learned though, but uh, never really used the certificate to gain employment. So when you were, when you moved to Austin, tell me a little bit more about memories of your neighborhood or where did you hang out? What did you, I mean, um, what did you do? Um, Anything of significance? Um, well, to you? within a year, I had uh, I had my first child, which was Courtney, and uh, so really our life was uh, work um, and then school after work, and and uh, and raising that child, juggling uh, parenthood. Uh, we lived out in Oak Hill, and there really wasn't uh, a lot of facilities out there. Or anything my uh, uh, my former husband Joe played a lot of baseball, and so our weekends were consumed at baseball tournaments. 
-hmm. and uh, and I played softball and so that was also you know a predominant part of our entertainment it was that uh, I went to work for the Education Service Center Region 13 right after Courtney was born in 73 and I was hired uh, in the uh, evaluation department to help them do an assessment of Carrasco Lenda's uh, television program, which was the, one of the very first, and it was the very first bilingual education program that was uh, uh, televised on KLRU, PBS, and they, the school districts were using it as their first uh, bilingual programming. So I was hired to go out into uh, neighboring schools, elementary schools, to assess students. We had a control group, we had several control groups in Austin, Brook Elementary was one of them, and, and then Seguin ISD had some elementary schools that we were using um, as the assessment group. And so I did a lot of the field work. Um, I helped find other uh, individuals in those communities to go in and help them do the testing of those students. And I collected data and brought it back and, and uh, helped the uh, director of that project to uh, pull together that data and, and develop the assessment report. What kind of um, other jobs did you have? Um, after that project uh, was completed, uh, Region 13 asked me to stay on in their research and evaluation department as an admin assistant. And um, so I, I worked in that department for a few months and then the opportunity came up. Uh, Texas Education Agency wanted to set up what was called a migrant student record transfer system uh, site for Central Texas. And the MSRTS, or Migrant Student Record Transfer System, was a national um, system that was set up to track migrant students that, you know, of course, were, were moving frequently sometimes during their, uh, their school year. And it was taking so long for one school district to request records from the previous school district in another state and by the time the records caught up you know kids were moving on and um, so they developed this national system that was headquartered in Little Rock Arkansas and back then they were using what they call a teletype system you typed everything into this teletype machine and it, it produced this little ticker tape with little holes in it and all the data was on that and then you'd have to transfer that back into the system, dial up Little Rock, and run that tape that would transmit that data that you just punched out into their main computer system. And so um, uh, I was asked to set up that di division in, uh, under migrant education, and I trained um, two additional staff people on how to encode and decode information, and then my job became um, it became my responsibility to go out into uh, Region 13 school districts and we also at the time had Region 6 which is like the Waco, Temple, 
mm -hmm. uh, kind of east yeah. area, northeast area. So were you hired by TEA to do that or uh, Region no, 13? Region 13, was, okay. yeah. But uh, TEA wanted it to be out in the service center instead of part of their, uh, they had, they had um, I think three or four other uh, sites. San Antonio had one and of course uh, they were handling almost all of the encoding and decoding for the valley area and I think they had one in West Texas. And mm -hmm. so um, it was early on during uh, the development of that system. Mm -hmm. And so my job then became uh, mostly going out into those school districts and training the individuals that were responsible for encoding the information onto these forms. Mm -hmm. And they would send the information to us and we would transfer that information into this, you know, big computer system so that a school district in Michigan could go in and type in this child's, you know, pertinent information and get his, his records uh, very quickly. We also kept uh, health information on the children so that, you know, the district had a pretty comprehensive uh, file of what was going on with the child. Wow, mm -hmm. it's amazing. So I did that for, I was with Region 13 for um, almost 10 years. Mm -hmm. And then I had the opportunity to uh, move to Saudi Arabia with my family. Uh, my husband was working there, had been working there for several years and we had the opportunity to move there and, um, and, and we lived there for, for three years. Um, before returning home so that at that time Courtney could start uh, junior high. Wow, I didn't know that. <laughs> How was that? It was great. I, um, I felt like those three years were um, extremely important years in my life. There was, uh, uh, there were uh, years of a, a lot of growth, personal growth, and um, like I couldn't work there because you, uh, women could, you know, expat women that came either had two options, you could work in the nursing industry or as a teacher, yeah. and you had to have a work visa, and of course I was not, uh, not, I didn't have the skills in either area, so yeah. I didn't really, I couldn't really work there, but it gave me an opportunity to do a lot of traveling while I was there. And also, there were so many other women that were there from different countries. And so I spent my time organizing women's groups and uh, beginning what we kind of called in like an exchange program where we would meet um, once a month and get to know about the cultures of some of the other women and, mm -hmm. and get to know some of the other women as well. Wow. Amazing. Mm -hmm. um, and then you came back to Austin? Yes. Then uh, we returned to Austin in uh, say 1985. And mm -hmm. so uh, Joe returned a year later. He stayed on another year uh, to finish up <clears throat> a project that they were working for. Uh, uh, he was working for H.P. Zachary International at the time and they were finishing up uh, building a whole other subdivision there for uh, an industrial complex that the Saudis were building to use the byproducts of oil so they weren't totally dependent on oil. 
and we were in the eastern province. Uh, we lived in a town called El Jebel, which was about uh, 45, 45 clicks from Daharan, yeah. and, and uh, very uh, right on. It was an old fishing port, yeah. and uh, very real small community. So, what did it feel like coming back? to Austin, Texas after having that experience? I actually had culture shock in reverse. Yeah. Um, it was very difficult to yeah. reassimilate um, after being gone. One, because uh, Saudi Arabia was such a safe place to live. Um, crime rate there <clears throat> was almost non-existent. Uh, most of the crimes that were committed there were committed by third world um, immigrants or, or employees, people that came from third world countries that were there on work visas. I think in the in the whole time I was there, the last year that I was there, there were two murders in the whole province. You know, so you could literally, because the crime, the penalties are so harsh that, um, you know, people just don't, don't commit yeah. crimes. It's almost non-existent. You could sleep with your door unlocked there and you could leave all of your, you know, valuables in the car and not worry about them yeah. being stolen. Because of course, you get caught stealing, they cut your hand off. You know, yeah. it's like I said, the penal penalties were very, very, very harsh. I can imagine. So coming back um, was difficult to kind of reassimilate, um, but once you did, I was um, invited to work for. A nonprofit organization that was uh, officed near the old Pepsi warehouse on Cesar Chavez, which is actually next door to one in a million. And um, it was called Youth Employment Service. It was a nonprofit organization that was started by one of the fathers, uh, one of the priests. I believe he was from, uh, I want to say Cristo Rey. I, I don't, I'm not, not for sure, don't quote me on that one, but. Um, he was uh, a former priest or pastor of one of the churches. Helped start that nonprofit. Uh, they were working with high school dropouts from the community and helping them uh, gain employment. So they were uh, recruiting high school dropouts, uh, providing training for them on how to fill out an application, how to do job search, how to do uh, adequate interviewing, yeah. um, that kind of thing. So uh, I went to work there. Uh, a friend of mine had worked there and she was moving on to work for uh, what is now the Workforce Commission. And mm -hmm. so she rec recommended me uh, to her director and I was hired. Uh, subsequently wrote a grant proposal to, um, to the Workforce Commission uh, for monies to do a summer youth employment program and we we were awarded the contract and so they kept me on to uh, to manage that summer program and they had it you know a few more years but um, that's when I really began to I think get really involved with uh, East Austin communities because we we developed uh, programming not just to prepare these young people for uh, jobs in the summer but we also developed programming uh, that the parents 
were required to participate in in order for their kids to to be in the programs and that meant that you know we were doing um, kind of a full family package yeah. and I, I don't think that we could have made the parents participate but they didn't know that so they, they came to the workshops yeah. and you come to six workshops where your, your child will be in the summer youth employment program and they'll get to work you know uh, for half a day during the summer and uh, get paid for it and so um, it was monies that were uh, the program was funded through monies through Job Training Partnership Act, JTPA, which we so need again. And um, I ended up staying in the JTPA uh, family for several more years after that because I went on to, uh, to work for uh, Texas Higher Education Coordinating Board was the entity that housed uh, the Youth Opportunities Unlimited program, mm -hmm. which was a governor's model program, it was funded through governor's model discretionary funds, and it was a statewide program that uh, took place on 20 uh, university and college campuses mm -hmm. across the state of Texas. Yeah. And we and what we did was we took students from uh, different private industry council or COGS uh, uh, areas and we put them in a total college immersion program in the summer for eight to ten weeks and they went to school half a day and they uh, they took English or math high school classes that were taught by local um, high school teachers and the other half a day they did work study and so they they were uh, kids that were certified as um, low income and they were given that experience so that they would think about higher education as a possibility in their life. Are and they high school students? They or? were high school students. They were juniors and senior high school students. Okay. And um, it was a very successful program. We had a very high uh, rate of students that went on to yeah. uh, to go to college. Mm -hmm. Was this statewide or just here? Not it was statewide. Yeah, <coughs> oh, we were, and so I spent my summers. Um, I was a coordinator. I had a director, and we had one other staff person. Uh, my summers were spent going to every college campus, twenty of them, mm -hmm. to monitor their program for compliance. Um, I did a trip there before the program started to to do training with the uh, staff and then went and did a, 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 a visit to do program compliance and audited them you know to make sure that they were uh, running their programs uh, properly and then usually at the end of the of the program I'd also go uh, and attend a lot of their graduation ceremonies and mm -hmm. and then go do a closeout uh, uh, monitoring visit with uh, with the staff, mm -hmm. but it was very rewarding work. I did that for three years, and you know, twenty campuses. Some of them you can fly, a lot of them you can. I had to do a lot of driving, so um, I remember the first summer. I think I did thirty six trips on Southwest Airlines in a eight week period. Wow. I was literally 
uh, home only on Wednesdays. I would leave out on Sunday, you know, for my first trip and come back Tuesday night or Wednesday morning and be in the office Wednesday. I'd leave again Thursday and yeah. wouldn't get back until Sunday a lot of times. So, yeah. but uh, great, great program. We had met a lot of uh, really um, great staff people that were very dedicated to to helping these young people. So it was. Um, the fun thing was taking uh, urban kids, urban minority kids from Houston and dumping them in West Texas State University uh, near the Panhandle in a very rural area, you know, and exposing them to um, summer camp-like activities, you know, canoeing and horseback riding, and, you know, the country and things like that. It was a pretty awesome thing for them. And it was mostly minority? It was, yeah, mostly um, black and Hispanic kids. Yeah. They're qualified. Yeah. Wow. Mm -hmm. So, um, you mentioned at that year, before you started working for the Higher Ed Coordinating Board, that the Youth Employment Services, um, with, was it that yeah. nonprofit? Uh-huh. How, how long were you with them? I was there for, um, I want to say two years, yeah. I believe, before I went on to YES. And you mentioned that that was the first time that you started getting involved with East Austin community. Mm -hmm. um, did you stay involved and what kind of, what, um, I mean, was the Latino community, you know, concentrated there? Pretty much, um, a huge portion of of the Mexican American community was was located in in uh, East Austin at the yeah. time. There was some uh, movement into South Austin uh, at the time. Dove Springs was uh, Bergstrom families because Bergstrom Air Force Base was still there. It wasn't uh, Dove Springs as you know it now. Yeah. Um, so it, it was still an Air Force base? It was an Air Force base. Oh, wow. Yeah. Okay. And so it wasn't until um, the subdivision and the subdivisions in Dove Springs were built primarily to house a lot of the military families that were um, that were stationed at Bergstrom. And so once the base shut down, a lot of those families left. And so you had this overabundance of homes um, that were in the Dove Springs area and that's why you have such a high percentage of, of rental property uh, in that area. So of course a lot of it became Section 8 housing because people you know who own those homes needed to are no longer living there because they transferred to another base or mm. you know they needed to be able and they couldn't maybe sell the property they had to they had to figure out a way to you know to keep it yeah. so they used it as rental property. But that, yeah, that was, I would think, my, um, I guess, my concentrated involvement because I had been involved with issues having to do with the minority community through my, um, through my involvement with the Mexican American Business and Professional Women's Association. MAPWA. Uh huh. And MAPWA was, was organized in the early 70s. Uh, Marta Cotera, of course, being you know the founding mom of that organization, but you had. You know, Amalia Rodriguez Mendoza um, involved. You had um, 
you know, quite a few other uh, women from the area that, you know, were were part of that group and and while they were doing a lot of professional development for uh, for their members, they also took on um, you know advocacy positions on on things having to do with uh, with the minority communities or with the Mexican American community. So was that when you started getting involved with politics and? Yeah, I I would think that was. Um, that was the time that I became aware of how public policy yeah. affected uh, communities. What year was that? That was, um, I want to say mid-70s. Yeah, it had to have been mid to late 70s when they organized. So it was through your comadres, through your friends that mm -hmm. you yeah. started to become engaged with mm -hmm. politics. What were some of the early issues? That housing you, was a big one. Housing? Yes. Um, uh, Marta and Juan had moved back to, uh, sorry, had moved back to Austin or had moved to Austin and they had um, several experiences where they called about rental property and when they showed up and the landlords realized that they were Latinos uh, they basically told them, we already rented, it's not available. And so they became aware that there was discriminatory practices going on, you know, with, uh, with people just, you know, trying to find a place to live. Yeah. And so that was one of the issues. The other was we found that um, there were no women appointed, or no Latinas uh, that were appointed to the boards and commissions of the city level. And subsequently, uh, when that issue of dis housing discrimination came up, um, some of those community leaders approached the city council and so they were, uh, they formed a human rights commission. Mm. And I believe that Marta was one of the people that served on that, on that <coughs> uh, commission early on. Uh, a lot of the things or the issues that came up with the minority communities went through that Human Rights Commission uh, for resolution. Mm -hmm. But then after I left uh, to the Middle East, I was, you know, of course, gone for three years, and so I wasn't um, involved in communities. So coming back um, and going to work in East Austin uh, was my. Uh, my immersion into the East Austin culture. I drove there, you know, from Oak Hill, which is predominantly mm -hmm. white neighborhood at the time, uh, rural, white rural neighborhood. Mm -hmm. I drove into East Austin every day to go to work and, uh, you know, working as closely as I was with those young people and, and getting to know about, you know, some of the obstacles that they were having to overcome Mm -hmm. uh, in order to find employment and the fact that they, you know, were high school dropouts um, and what attributed to that gave me a whole different perspective of what some of those families were dealing with. Yeah. And I guess the difference for me, Perla, was that um, I grew up here in San Marcos, which was at the time uh, probably about 60% 
Hispanic mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and I, I grew up in a household that uh, was middle income. Both my parents owned businesses. Uh, my, my mother, you know, had a business. She w was a working woman, which was uh, not prevalent at the time that I was growing up. Yeah. And so while everybody, all my friends' mothers were stay-at-home moms, you know, I had, I had a working mother and we had, you know, a woman uh, who was there for us in the home, you know, raising us and taking care of the house. And yeah. so it was a very different experience. You know, we, um, we, I didn't come from a family of poverty. Um, I didn't have to overcome, you know, some of those issues. In fact, I don't think that I ever really experienced racism. Um, that I was aware of until I moved to Austin. Mm. And, and that might be because San Marcos is such a small community and everybody knew each other. And to some degree, my parents had some clout because they were in the business community. Yeah. And they were successful. And my father had had a, uh, you know, a successful um, auto repair business for, for many decades. And so it was a, just a, a very different experience for me when, when I moved to Austin. So, um, were there any other, you mentioned housing and, uh, you know, Latina representation, any, any other, I guess, social justice or issues that you can that you were aware of at the time or uh, when or I mean leading up to I remember the um, the, the boat race issue um, that was a big one yeah. um, you had what they called Aquafest every year which was a big you know celebration that was held on town lake on auditorium shores and um, usually in July you know August uh, summertime, but they had boat races and that took the boats, very loud speedy boats into East Austin, uh, east side of 35, uh, some of it was being launched out of Fiesta Gardens. Yeah. And so there was a huge disruption uh, to the communities there that were and the neighborhoods that were right on uh, Festival Beach. Mm -hmm. So you had, you know, all of this intrusion, not to mention the noise mm -hmm. that came from it. And so when um, those neighborhoods complained about it, um, nothing was, you know, it just kind of felt on deaf ears. And so it wasn't until um, those communities organized and began to have protests mm -hmm. and uh, take it, you know, down to City Hall that that something was finally done about it. But that was um, when I became aware of the Brown Berets and, mm. um, and some of the activities that they, you know, that they took on. They were, you know, frequently in the newspaper and um, they were, per, you know, cast to be a very radical group and, yeah. and... Uh, when, what years were that? Those were the seven late 70s or mid yeah. to late 70s I believe. Mm -hmm. So that was I think one of the 
one of the big issues of the time. Um, I do remember the Ku Klux Klan coming to a parade. They marched up Congress and, you know, there was, the minority communities were coming undone about that. Mm. And so there was, you know, I guess for me it was um, a totally new awareness. I mean, I didn't, hadn't thought much about Ku Klux Klan, yeah. you know, living in this, you know, kind of isolated community when you think yeah. about it. So when did you first become aware of the MAC or that the community wanted a cultural center? It was um, when I was working at Region 13 because uh, Juan Pablo Gutierrez was one of my colleagues. He worked in bilingual education department right across the hall from migrant education department which I was in and uh, we became good friends and of course you know uh, many people attribute him to um, to actually birthing the concept mm -hmm. or the idea of having a cultural a Mexican American cultural center and I think I think they even at one point I remember seeing renderings uh, sketches that he had made uh, I don't know if he did them or if an architect it might have been an architect that that did the the renderings of a of a cultural center at the time they thought would be uh, placed somewhere in the Festival Beach area. Yeah. So. Wow. Uh, and so that was the late 70s? Mm, that would have been uh, probably early 80s. Yeah, I'm going to say early 80s because Bianca was born in 88. Um, I was still at Region 13 and Juan Pablo was there. Mm -hmm. Late 70s, early 80s. So how did, so that was when you first became aware of it. How mm -hmm. did you personally begin to get involved? Um, I didn't really get involved in it until, I mean, with the exception of, of discussions with Juan Pablo and, and you know, hearing about some of the things, you know, that, that they were uh, trying to do at the time. Um, they had also uh, brought about um, the university that they, that they had, you know where IHOP is on the corner of Cesar Chavez. Mm -hmm. Well, they managed to uh, bring a school there. Mm -hmm. It was a big building there was kind of old and they were able to uh, to put a, a college there that actually several people went through and got were able to get degrees at that would not have been able to get into uh, the University of Texas. So it was a, a college mm -hmm. and, actually, mm -hmm. and was it mostly for Latinos mm -hmm. or was it mm -hmm. minorities? Yes. Minorities, yes. Lincoln oh. Juarez. Yeah. Lincoln Juarez University. Yeah, I've heard of it. So when did um when did you then begin to get involved with, with the, the Mac? Mac? It wasn't until um I was working in Gus's office as his aide. Mm -hmm. Uh during the time that they went out for bonds, uh, I was in the Middle East the first time that they mm -hmm. took, you know, went went out for it. And of course, Marta and 
Marta Cotera and Emma Barrientos were were instrumental in in you know helping to lead that charge and going out into the community to to garner support for it. And so um, I went to work in Gus's office in '92, early '92, uh, and you know got busy uh, really doing a lot of work in the community. He required that I spend 60% of my time out in the community uh, being the eye, his eyes and ears because he was so busy you know in meetings uh, that he couldn't be everywhere and so what we found was that there was uh, a huge disparity with our especially our Latino communities and in organizing neighborhood associations and so the Austin Neighborhoods Council uh, did not have good representation from um, the Latino and African American communities and so that was one of the things that that he had me work on so go out there you know and work with these communities and help them understand the processes that they can take they need to organize we will send them information when we know it and yeah. so thus began you know some of the organizing work that I did and subsequently I ended up working with um, Amigos en Azul with the Austin Hispanic Firefighters Association. I did a lot of work with them. Um, they came to Gus saying they wanted to um, organize their group and he basically said, I'm assigning Bobby to help you. I mean, from from the bottom up, developing board policies, doing board retreats with them, um, you know, helping them to, uh, you know, develop their their programs, their, you know, their uh, their mission statement, all of that. And the same with Austin Hispanic Contractors Association. Uh, we had um, also that group that wanted to to organize. And actually the original individuals that pulled that group together were uh, Michael Van Olen, Sergio Ornelas, and uh, Mr. Montoya. So... Uh, Ornelas? Yeah. Sergio Ornelas, yeah, he was a big contractor. He and his brother owned Zeta Construction. And so um, they were the ones that came up with the idea of, of organizing the contractors as they were, we were in the midst of uh, tweaking the MWBE ordinance at the time. Mm -hmm. The It was like the second run through uh, after the first you know, ordinance had been approved and they were tweaking some of the loopholes and, and then this, of course, followed um, the disparity study that had, had been done. So... Did you say and Montoya or Moya? Montoya. Okay. Yeah, Mr. Pete Montoya. Pete Montoya. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So they were, um, I guess, initially the, you know, the the three that were working toward organizing that group and um, so those were some of the groups that you know that I helped uh, during that time but one of the uh, the other was we found that there was a huge disparity in how the Arts Commission was uh, was uh, appropriating the funds to the arts groups and actually it was the city council because the arts commission you know basically gave recommendations and 
and it was still the city council that had the ultimate, you know, decision in that. Uh, Esther Matthews, who was the aide to Max Knopfinger, mm -hmm. who was mayor pro tem at the time, um, was charged with oversight of uh, the arts uh, appropriations. Oh yeah. And so, um, looking at um, how that was being done, mm -hmm. and uh, put pulling it all into a pie chart was. Um, kind of eyebrow raising when we saw that there was this tiny sliver of funding that was minuscule in comparison to uh, what the non-minority arts organizations were getting yeah. from all that bed tax money. And so uh, we had to figure out a way uh, to bring more equity into the process. And at the time it was um, you know, just who lobbied the council and what projects the councils, you know, each council member uh, mm -hmm. was interested in funding and what amounts. Well, the Latino and African American community arts groups were not really doing much lobbying and, you know, they, they were too busy doing their programming. They didn't have the, you know, the, um, the staff. Um, and sometimes the resources, you know, mm -hmm. to do some of that uh, lobbying. And so um, that's when we decided that we, we needed to start doing something about it. And so I joined Esther Matthews and said, I want to learn, you know, more about this. And, um, and she and I began to work on how we could um, maybe change the system somewhat uh, in order to to bring about more equity. And then subsequently, Max went off the council the following year, and so I took over the, the responsibility of, of, you know, pulling together the, the arts funding for the council. And, uh, and that's when we decided, okay, uh, we can help the arts, our or, arts organizations uh, at least uh, provide more awareness for the rest of the council about their programs. Yeah. And so once um, we really got into the thick of it, we decided that we needed to bring all of the Latino arts organizations together. And um, there were 21 arts organizations at the time. And what we found was that there was um, they had not been working together. There was a lot of competition that had been created between those groups just for that little tiny sliver of, of funding that was out there. So there was like this systematic, um, I don't know, systematic, what do you call it? Systematic discrimination against minority arts programming mm -hmm. that was going on. And so um, I spent, um, many days um, bringing them together, allowing them to vent, uh, taking information down, getting histories, and uh, finally presenting them with uh, all of that information that was compiled. Yeah. And what they found was that they all had very similar obstacles to overcome and issues 
that needed to be addressed and we quickly figured out from the information that we had gathered that there was a, a opportunity here for them to partner on some of their mm -hmm. uh, arts programming or events so that they could get more bang for the dollar that they were getting. They also learned uh, that it was important for them to pull together um, packets about their arts organizations and programming and presenting present them to not only the Arts Commission but but the City Council so they would be yeah. aware of. And so subsequently they began to schedule meetings with the Arts or I mean with the City Council and go and talk to them about what they were doing. Yeah. And so that began the change. So during the course of that work uh, there were four of us that got together, uh, Silvia Orozco, um, Ishel Rosal, who was working for La Peña at the time, uh, myself, and I want to say there was another individual that helped us, I can't remember. Ishel. Yet. It was Ishel Rosal. Yeah, I know Ishel, I-X. C-H-E-L. She was, uh, she was uh, I guess the director of La Peña at the yeah. time, and uh, and myself, and we spent a few weekends working in my office on a grant to the National Endowment for the Arts. We submitted the grant on behalf of the Latino Arts Consortium of Austin, LACA, L-A-C-A, and we were awarded a consortium building grant for three years, and thus you know, be, that for me was the jump start of the MAC again. So when Gus said to me, you know, is there any project, is there any particular thing that you want to do while you're, you know, working here in this office? And my response was, I want to build a MAC. And so he said, well, get after it. So we knew that we had begun to lay the groundwork, and so when we got the the funding from NEA, um, it helped solidify that. And our groups, uh, because it was a consortium building grant, uh, you know, really thrived. I think during those first couple of years, and so we also saw that Mexicarte began to take a leadership role. La Peña began to take a leadership role. And of course, you know, with with Cynthia Perez and Sylvia Orozco um, on board, it was you're right. We need to get a Mac built, you mm -hmm. know. And so um, the next step was bringing Marta and Emma back in, uh, you know, to meet with Gus to talk about how we could initiate uh, getting that on the bond, the next bond election again. And uh, those discussions started. Uh, Kathy Vasquez immediately uh, came in, and uh, she began working, you know, with others on pulling together um, policy for uh, the council to, you know, to look at and in getting uh, the MAC going. What, so what year was that about? This was, uh, I'm going to say late 95, uh, mid to late 95, and, and in through 96. Because I left Gus's office in, in February of 97, 
and we had already started that pro we had been working on that process yeah. uh, for quite some time and so um, with the changes in how the council was doing arts funding uh, we we also began to see that discrepancy uh, or the disparity between the minority groups funding and the non-minority groups funding began to change and um, we knew that Mechicarte because it had been in existence the longest and was uh, you know, pretty much solidified, one, because of its location on 5th and Congress. It was, it was a prevalent, you know, uh, place for it to be and uh, it got a lot of visibility, yeah. you know, very close to City Hall and uh, in its new uh, uh, home because, you know, initially Mexicarta started in a little warehouse area uh, in, uh, there in South Austin. Yeah, um, I can't remember the name of it. It was like a little storage facility. Was you it called Mexicarte back then? Too? Yes, it was. It was always Mexicarte. Mexicarte. So when did they move downtown? Um, you'd have to ask Sylvia that. Mm. Sylvia and Sam Coronado were the, yeah. the the two, but they initially started in like you know a kind of a warehouse or a storage area. So you. Um, then use the location of Mexicarte, Mexicarte as part of your strategy? Mm -hmm. Well that because um, we knew uh, Austin Museum of Art had a presence on Congress at the time they had that satellite uh, uh, facility there at the bank building on 8th yeah. between 8th and, and, and 9th Street Ninth. and in addition to you know the big uh, facility and we knew that they were they had already begun looking at coming downtown to yeah. have a, a you know a museum there across the street from them was the other uh, uh, austin arts organization they now combined with another group and I'm trying to remember they were more modern um, a modern art uh, facility museum of modern Mo might have been museum, yeah might have been museum of modern art it was an Austin uh, yeah. group and so um, it was important I think we all recognized that it was important for Mexicarte to to maintain its uh, its presence there in the downtown area in order for it to be uh, perceived and and accepted as a prominent uh, museum and so uh, I was asked to go on the board of Mexicarte uh, and and began working on fundraising and uh, and subsequently as uh, as the vice president of development uh, helped them put together a uh, request to the city council to approve funding so that they could develop a business plan hire someone to come in and develop mm -hmm. a business plan to get them moving toward uh, permanency to get them moving toward a building and, and yeah. that kind of thing and so we were able uh, to get that uh, that funding after meeting with uh, with Mayor Kirk Watson and he got behind it and helped uh, help them to get you know that that movement going uh, so in that last year uh, before my 
leaving Gus's office, uh, we began working on uh, getting the MAC on the bond election, and uh, all of those arts organizations got behind it. So uh, I remember going to some LACA mm -hmm, meetings. Mm -hmm. Now, in the last year of LACA, um, there was some uh, conflicts, and we had some arts organizations that kind of uh, that were considered, I guess, to be a little bit more radical, and they kind of took over, you know, the arts funding, and some of the other groups just kind of went off and did their own thing and decided that, you know, that was not maybe the direction that they wanted to be, you know, to be involved in. And so LACA just kind of came to a standstill once um, the monies were expended. What happened? Um, I'm not really sure because at that point I was already out of, uh, out of Gus's office and, you know, didn't stay involved. But I think that you had some some radical groups that were, uh, you know, doing more maybe political uh, types of programming, art programming that uh, perhaps the methods were not considered to be uh, amicable to some of the other groups. And so um, they get, were able to gain control of the, of the board and and so the other groups just kind of said, you know, we've had enough, and they uh, disbanded. So I think that if it had been, uh, if it had been a different story, they could have applied for additional three years of funding yeah. and continued to uh, to develop as a as a Latino arts organ, you know, association. Wouldn't it be great? That to would have it back? been. It really would. It really would. And I actually spoke with a few people after that. I know I had the discussion with Rudy Mendez and I thought what would I do when I grow up and I thought well maybe I would be the one to start a Latino Arts Association you know there that would be like the fundraising arm for all of the organizations and the PR arm for all of the organizations but I was so busy making a living that I just yeah. one did not have the resources or uh, or even the time at at that point to get that going but yeah it would be something that would I've always mm -hmm. thought that like whatever happened to Laka mm -hmm. so you think that that this um, the politics within the Latino arts groups is what essentially disbanded Laka I think it was uh, that and and those, uh, I guess the groups that were involved in that, you know, kind of takeover, or, um, they were not local grown arts organizations. They, you know, they had come from other areas, and so, yeah. you know, that in itself, there, there has always been, in my opinion, um, that need to be connected. Yeah. to Austin. Uh, I think that I came to Austin early and I was 18 when I moved to Austin. Yeah. So by the time that I moved back to San Marcos, I had lived most of my adult, almost all of my adult life 
in in Austin and I had been an Austinite longer than I had been a, a, a resident of San Marcos. Mm -hmm. So I lived in San Marcos the first 18 years of my life and then I lived 30 years in Austin and so that's really where I grew up. Uh, that's where I, you know, where I developed uh, my reputation, my career, um, had my children, you know, they're both Austinites and um, and so that's really where where I became involved with community. So yeah. 10 years when I moved back to San Marcos, um, it's even, I still maintain those very close ties because my roots are still very deep there. Yeah. Even though now I live here, I still, all of my work is there, majority of my work is there, and my friends are there, and yeah. my kids and grandkids are there, and so, there's still that connection, even though now I'm becoming uh, more involved with what's going on here in San Marcos, just because it's my old town. Yeah. So you think it had some, the politics had something to do with outsiders coming in? Yes, I, I think it was, um, not just outsiders. Like non-Austinites? Non non-Austinites, um, uh, and, and even some non-Texans. You know, their uh, different w approaches, you know, more uh, in-your-face kind of approaches to, uh, to trying to bring about change. And I think at that point, the, a lot of the members of LACA had realized that the time of getting in your face and yelling, you're not giving me what I should be getting, uh, those times were gone. They understood that they had to build relationships, yeah. that they had to be able to convey um, in a civil way and with um, give and take uh, communication mm -hmm. in order to to bring about change. Yeah. And so uh, I think it was during those three years was a, a growth, a real growth period for a lot of the, of the members of the organization and, and because they had, they realized that all those years of bickering and infighting had really gotten them nothing, mm -hmm. they, they knew now, you know, that they could partner, they could mm -hmm. let those things go, they were minuscule. Um, issues in comparison to, you know, getting arts funding. And so in order for their organizations to continue to exist, much less flourish, they were going to have to do something different. And just bringing the, those 21 groups together was phenomenal yeah. because they, those communications did begin and they also began to respect each other's uh, programs and organizations and began to support each other. Yeah. So it was not unusual to have um, a music group partner with a dance group, partner with a theater group, yeah. you know, to bring about their annual uh, production, yeah. uh, to share expenses for advertising, to pull together sponsorships and yeah. use the same venues. And Yeah, that's what I remember. La Pastorella mm -hmm. being about. Mm -hmm. What do you? What are some of the groups or individuals that you remember involved with LACA? 
uh, well, you had, um, of course, Machicate and La Peña. Uh, Rowan was part of it, uh, uh, his theater group. Aslan Dance uh -huh. Company. Yes, the, uh, that group. You had uh, Roy Lozano's group, uh, the Ballet Folklorico. You had uh, uh, the Syrie Project, Sam Coronado. You had a lot of individual artists who were doing programming. Um, Rudy Mendes's uh, Ballet Folklorico and, and his uh, ballet group. Mm -hmm. that does a lot of modern, uh, you know, uh, choreography and, and productions was also one of the, Rudy one of the, Mendes? Rudy Mendes, yeah, okay. Ballet, um, Ballet East, Ballet East, yes, okay. and, uh, and so uh, then you had a lot of individual artists that were doing uh, programming as well. You had uh, Diverse Arts, Harold McMillan's group, uh, you had uh, Harold Macmillan, you had um, diverse arts that was started by um, the young man that passed away not too long ago. Pro Arts Collective? Yes, Pro Arts Collective. Boyd, um, Boyd Vance? Yes, Boyd Vance. You had um, some things that were coming out of Carver. You know, you had some groups that would do their productions there. And so uh, even the individual artists realized that they could come under the umbrella of one of the larger at one point Mechicarte was the umbrella for a lot I yeah. think as many as maybe 10 or 12 individual artists who were doing uh, programs and um, you know needed to have that extra footing and yeah. so um, that was one way that you know they were helping the same with La Peña you know, they worked with a lot of individual artists yeah. as well and allowed, you know, those partnerships to develop and subsequently became the venue for a lot of their exhibits yeah. uh, or some of even some of their musical yeah. uh, productions. Mm. I'll have to look for that list. The 21... The I'd 21 be uh, interested to compare it to mm -hmm. the list of Latino organizations now mm -hmm. to see if it's grown or reduced or I mean because I remember La Pastorella some of the theater groups not just Teatro Vivo but New Shank Theater mm -hmm. and Lupe Arte was another one of them that Lupe Arte mm -hmm. LCP Latino Comedy mm -hmm. Project or, that was yes uh, or wait Teatro Campesino Campesino uh, um, yes Humilde or something uh, well, and Rupert was involved mm -hmm. with them, but then he spun off the other people. So, Vivo. but now I feel like there's fewer mm -hmm. theater companies, Latino theater. I mean, I just really know Teatro Vivo, and um, there's this Spanish language. Yeah, the uh, I know which one you're talking about. Yeah, it's a campesino group as yeah. well. Yeah. So, um, yeah, that'd be interesting. So, then, I guess. Do you want to, we've been talking an hour, but um, do you want to talk uh, or say anything about just your overall feelings about the MAG and the process of, you know, getting us to where we are today and maybe any visions or inspirations or hopes for what it could be in the future? Uh, well, 
uh, initially, um, one of the things that I learned was uh, you did you had to have someone at the city council level to advocate for it. Mm -hmm. uh, we realized that there was a property there at in, in the Rainy Street area that was being used by the city as a street and bridge um, site for their fleet services, uh, which was not really compatible because it was so close to the river, uh, it wasn't compatible environmentally. Mm -hmm. And so uh, that's how that, that site became the site. And Gus realized that he could have that piece of property that was already owned by the city uh, deemed in perpetuity as the site for the MAC. And so henceforth, once you have the property, that's one of the biggest hurdles. You have the property and you don't even have to pay for it because the city already owns it. And so now uh, all he had to do was get support from the rest of the council uh, to approve the, you know, the resolution. And so uh, that was that was a big, uh, the first big piece of it. Yeah. So then once they got, you know, the bond uh, election passed, uh, the bonds were approved for, for the MAC to be built, they realized that there was a potential because of where the property was, there was a potential for there to be several phases. Mm -hmm. And I know uh, during discussions with Laka and some of the community groups that got involved with the building of the MAC. Of course, there was everybody's, you know, everybody has their own ideas about yeah. about what they want to see, but there was even discussion then about the possibility of, you know, another building, you know, being added on as Mexicatis building, mm -hmm. another building where there would be nothing but educational. Yeah. It would be the education building where you would have you know, music lessons and art lessons and dance lessons and theater lessons and things like that. And so, of course, now, you know, it, it because it's uh, still under the, the direction of the city, because it's a city facility, yeah. um, you maybe have uh, not as many opportunities unless, you know, you can really get a a huge uh, funding arm as a non or a nonprofit funding arm, you know, for that can raise a, a lot of money yeah. uh, to, you know, to add, you know, other facilities. Otherwise, you're having to go through the same process of the bonds. of getting bonds or, or monies appropriated in order to um, to expand it. Yeah. But um, the other reason that that the location was important, and this is the historical significance, is that Rainy Street was the last Mexican community that existed west of 35 at that time. After the Mexican American communities were pushed to the east side of 35 from Republic Square Park and all of that area and you know all of their businesses were located on 6th Street um, all of that was 
Mexican American communities. And, you know, once the forefathers decided that IH-35 was coming through and determined that those communities needed to be moved uh, out of the downtown area, um, so that Rainy Street neighborhood was like the last hurrah at the time. You know, it was the last Mexican-American community and on so the west on the west side of 35. And so that was another um, reason why that particular location um, had some significance. Have you been through there lately? Yes. Yeah, I don't like what what's happened to that community at all. Yeah. So it's um, it's unfortunate because you you know you're going to have change, but the gentrification issue, um, I guess, to the level that it happens, really does tear away at the fabric of of the culture of a community. You just can't preserve it if you've got you know that level of gentrification going on. Yeah, yeah. So a lot of the history has been lost simply because of that. Yeah. So hard. Mm -hmm. They should have made it a historic neighborhood. Yep. Well, um, what do you, any other thoughts about um, you know, the future of the MAC or what you hear people talking about or doing or, um, or saying? A couple of years ago, I was asked to come in and facilitate a meeting uh, between the MAC staff and the uh, board of, uh, or the commission that's yeah. been appointed to to oversee the MAC and and the community. There was um, a manager that was appointed as the, the manager of the MAC who um, in essence did not have art programming as his background and I mean he was basically an engineer type individual that had been appointed as the manager and the community felt that it not only was he uh, his his experience inappropriate for that position. Um, they also felt that it did not have the connections with the community that the that had advocated yeah. for the building of the MAC. Who was this? Um, was it one? No, no. It was a young man. Um, was this after the MAC was built, or after before? the MAC? After the MAC was built, he was appointed as a manager before Erlinda. Oh, was it Simon? Simon. Okay. And so uh, I was asked to come in and do, uh, to facilitate that meeting. And yeah. In fact, I think I still may, unless I just threw them out, I still have the meet, the, I have the notes. I don't know if I have the, the actual writing from the big You should, if you have, board. you should yeah, turn uh, them into the Austin. If I still have them, because I know I just cleaned out a bunch of stuff okay. from my office and threw it away, but I do have the notes okay. from that meeting, because I recently sent them to someone. Uh, but I did save those from that meeting and what came out of uh, the discussions that we had with that community. Well, there was someone before Simon. It was um, Amparo. 
Yeah, Amparo. Uh, this was this was Simon because Amparo left and and this and then Simon came mm -hmm. in and that was where the community was having some difficulty yeah. and um, so uh, a lot of the discussion that day uh, stemmed around what the community had envisioned, you know, as uh, as the MAC during the time that they were advocating and trying to get support for the bonds yeah. and uh, one of the issues was the fact that uh, some exhibits had gone up that were not by Latinos or not by local uh, you know Mexican-American artists or Latino artists and uh, that it was the prices for um, some of the local organizations was inhibitive you know, for or mm -hmm. it prohibited them from yeah. uh, from having their programming there. I remember we had a community meeting when Amparo was still director. She was still there when uh, yeah when we had that meeting, but she was on her way out. Oh, okay, and I remember Marta Cotera being there, mm -hmm. and I was there. I I was invited, and and some of this stuff came out. Mm -hmm. And see, I think Simon was there, but he was just listening. And I guess maybe that's, yeah, maybe that's when she was on her way out and he was getting ready to, getting ready to mm -hmm. take on the position. Yes. Yeah, I remember. So um, there was, uh, there actually, I think I came in, you know, and did a second meeting and that might have been when Simone was already in. But, okay. But that first meeting, yeah, definitely was. Um, and then, of course, just strategic issues like, um, you know, you're doing the pastorela, and then you've got other programming. and you've got to take everything out and reset it up instead of having, you know, the, yeah. the space available, you know, uh, consistently throughout yeah. the, the days and uh, logistical things, you know, that came up. But, um, but mostly it was about access, communities access and uh, local um, Latino artists access to uh, to the space. Yeah, I remember that. Mm -hmm. Do you hear anything about the Mac now or what do you do? Um, I think that that people are you know happy that um, the programming that's going on there is really great. I think that at some point uh, you're going to have to have an entity like a Friends of the Mac or yeah. you know the uh, a nonprofit arm that can raise money so that there will be scholarships available for a lot of the the young people and, and students in the area and the community that can't afford yeah. you know to uh, to go to those camps summer camps or or take any of the classes yeah. um, and that I think is really at the heart of what people envision for the MAC. Yeah. They, I think, uh, throughout the time that there was uh, discussions from, you know, the early stages, was to have a facility where community and especially children could go and get exposure to all the different types of Latino art. Yeah. Uh, without having to pay for it, yeah. you know? How else are you going to get it? 
you're not going to get it at the Austin Museum of Art. You know, you're not going to get it necessarily in the schools. Mm -hmm. And so, um, really, that I think was the basis of what, of where the Mac was coming from. Yeah. Um, the last time that I got involved was during um, the initiative to name the Mac after Emma. Mm -hmm. And Emma was a good friend of mine. I spent, she was one of those women that, you know, also took me under her wing when I was young and um, and mentor, did some mentoring. And yeah. uh, and because uh, her best friend, Belia, is my best friend, uh, we traveled together many mm -hmm. times. And uh, so I got to know Emma um, pretty well and got to even know her better through Velia. But um, I came on the committee, uh, one, because I was part of the discussions yeah. that were, uh, that where Emma expressed and community expressed that the MAC would never be named after any individual. And so it was very hard for me when I was, when Belia called me and asked me to come on the committee to, um, I was really torn. One, because of my love for this woman who yeah. was incredible, um, but also because I knew firsthand that the community had, uh, had always said, this will be the community's cultural center. It will not be about any one individual and those conversations happened many times and Emma agreed with them yeah. and so um, I stayed on the committee one because I wanted there to be an opportunity for individuals in the community who felt that way mm -hmm. and who wanted to um, be able to articulate uh, those sentiments mm -hmm. to have a place to do it. Yeah. And I did get contacted by a lot of individuals and I brought it back to the committee. Yeah. And basically the committee's response was, our charge is to get the MAC named after Emma and that is all that we are charged with. Mm. And so um, because I had a global perspective of yeah. it, it was very hard. And yeah. you will see my name signed as one of the committee members um, and I in fact at one point I even said why don't we name a theater after her or another you yeah. know uh, the other part of that for me was that I'm also very good friends with Marta Cotera mm -hmm. and Marta was the other part of yeah. that duo yeah. of getting the MAC yeah. uh, passed. And I felt that it was um, dishonoring and inappropriate to name it after one and not the other. Because mm. they were equally responsible for, yeah. in fact, Martha may have done a lot more for um, getting the MAC moved mm. than Emma. So, you know, there was, I know that it was a very emotional issue, but I did have a lot of people sending me emails and they were afraid to go before the council yeah. and say it because one, 
they did not want to be seen as anti-Emma Barrientos. Yeah, yeah. And the other, they were really concerned that their arts funding would be affected. Mm. And, and so they were just, you know, they figured it was going to go anyway. But I did, I did forward that information. But like mm -hmm. I said, that was, at that point, the committee was charged with that, and that was their only task. Yeah. So it is what it is. Yeah, I wasn't aware. Well, I wasn't as involved with that. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. I remember. That was painful. That was very painful yeah. for me. It was. And I do remember seeing some comments for, you know, from some people, you know, feeling, you know, feeling like it shouldn't be named after one person, mm -hmm. that it was, you know, the people's cultural center. Mm -hmm. but and I think that had those discussions not been had, yeah. if they had never taken place early on, yeah. that, you know, maybe people wouldn't have felt so strongly about it, yeah. but... Um, you know, you have a, it's a senator's wife, had political clout, you had um, community leaders that got behind it for whatever reason. I mean, Emma was deserving, but like I said, it was, you know, it, it was a, it was a, I think it was very, um, it was very painful for a lot of people to see yeah. that happen. Yeah, I can see. I mean, she definitely deserves some credit. Mm -hmm. But a lot of people. Mm -hmm. Do you know that when they had the um, when they had the ceremony not too long ago, mm -hmm. when they um, actually finally put the sign up, mm -hmm. I did not get an invitation, and neither did Marta Cotera. Really? And we were on the committee that advocated for the name change, and we were not. I was not even aware until the day I saw it in the newspaper. Wow. Yeah. And so that further added to the, you know, to the, to the hurt that was already there. I was like, I think that uh, maybe for me, but, but I know for Marta, it had to have been very, very painful. Mm -hmm. One, because, I mean, she loved Emma too, yeah. you know, and she would have wanted to be there. But mm -hmm. neither one of us got notice, email, invitation, mm -hmm. and invitations were sent out. So I'm not sure what happened there, but <laughs> to this day, I've asked and I've never gotten an answer. Mm. So somebody dropped the ball, or was it the ball dropped, or was it an intentional, yeah. you know, uh, situation? How do you miss not inviting the actual people that were on the committee yeah. uh, charged with getting, you know, the, the resolution through city council? Hmm. Interesting. I just find out about stuff on Facebook. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but that's how I heard about it. I didn't get an invitation. Uh -uh. Um, I don't know. Um, was there anything else that you wanted to um, mention? Anything that you didn't think we talked about that is worth mentioning about the Mac, any last thoughts or? Um, I know that um, there were discussions about having an art school there, mm -hmm. um, you know, where those classes could take place where other 
um, organizations come in and actually uh, provide, you know, like I said, arts, arts programming. Um, and I don't know now with, you know, the Waller Creek Tunnel coming in, if, you know, if that's something that, you know, could be expedited. Um, you know, there's a whole other history there that I was not privileged to uh, with what happened uh, after the MAC was uh, passed and you had, you know, one group or a nonprofit group that took over um, getting it built and then, you know, this, the issues that came up with that mm -hmm. and subsequently the city having to uh, take it back and, and appoint you know, a board uh, to advise, you know, on on the MAC. So I don't know at this point, um, because I wasn't involved at that point, I was already gone from Gus's office, I wasn't involved in, in um, intricately in what was going on, yeah. you know, internally. But um, I know that it's left uh, maybe some negative perceptions in the community about how uh, the Latino community operates and their ability to um, manage and oversight in, in, and oversee a project like that or a facility like that. And so I think that, you know, even as a community, uh, whether it's the individuals that were involved or, or others now that are interested in supporting the MAC, uh, that we have to be more careful about um, the decisions that are made and and holding um, you know each other accountable for carrying out you know the the overall goals for a project of that magnitude without um, it getting tainted by individuals egos or individuals uh, ideas and and their own personal agendas mm -hmm. And, you know, I see that the, the new, maybe some of the upcoming uh, leaders in our community perhaps have a more global perspective and are not so caught up in, um, in some of the old, you know, attitudes and, and maybe can pull it off. But I know that uh, that, that that was maybe something that could have been avoided, you know, had had people or had someone been there to continue, someone in authority would have had to have been, or someone who was highly respected in the community to continue to bring them back to this is our goal, this is, you know, how do, how do these actions that you're taking uh, affect our overall mission here, yeah. our goal, uh, to make sure that that the process you know, didn't get caught up in yeah. all of these other agendas. Because yeah. yeah, I mean, if you go back out now and say we need, we need another thirty million dollars to expand the MAC. I mean, there's going to be people in the community that can come back and say, why should we give you? Why should we approve another thirty million yeah. when you messed it up the first time? You know, or, or you, you know, there was, there was. Uh, lack of accountability or mm -hmm. um, you all don't know how to get along or you know there are all these 
things that that yeah. that could be said. It was certainly a learning process. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was for me. I was mm-hmm. in my early twenties back then. We just threw you into the whole pile of wolves, didn't we? <laughs> I, yes, I didn't know what I was doing. I was just taking directions and. Keeping my mouth shut, but my ears open, mm-hmm. ears and my eyes open. I learned a lot from that experience. Yeah. Well, um, we got it done. I mean, that's you know the important thing, as painful as it was. But I think that you have to look at that history in order to not repeat it. And uh, and and whoever is now involved there, if there still is a nonprofit arm. Um, yeah. They're going to have to expand yeah. their, uh, you know, their reach in the community. It's not just it's not just something that's going to be funded by the Latino community. You've yeah. got to get, you know, a, a, others uh, on a wide a wide segment of the community involved yeah. in supporting it. Yeah, and it's a tough time for the arts right now. Mm-hmm. But um, but it is built, and. Um, it's, uh, I feel, we're, you know, doing some good programming there mm-hmm. now. It just felt like it took a while mm-hmm. to get our walking legs. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Well, and I think the, you know, the appointments to, uh, to that border are going to be real, real important. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you ask about, you know, uh, things that I've heard in the community, and and yeah, you've got um, you've got some perceptions about some of the leadership on the board uh, just being an extension of you know other groups or other individuals that are really pulling the strings, and so you know how do you overcome that? Yeah, goes back to the issue of trust. Do you feel that um, or we're doing the MAC, the people involved with the MAC are doing a better job? Do you think you see some improvement, some growth, some, you know, better potential there? Mm, I've got mixed feelings about it. Yeah. Um, I think that you have... Um, some good members on the board that are totally committed to seeing improvement at the MAC Mm -hmm. and then you have um, a few members on the board that maybe are there on behalf of others or another organization that wishes to maintain control. Mm. I haven't looked at the board lately. Mm-hmm. Okay. Any other closing thoughts? Mm, not about the Mac. I don't think so. I'm, I'm glad they're doing it. Um, How do you feel about this oral history project? I love it. Um, I think there has to be more of it. Yeah. Uh, it was a long time coming. I know we did, um, when we first did the Mapua archives, and that had to have been what? 
15 or 20 years ago we did yeah. uh, with the Austin History Center. I, I attended a couple of workshops that they had on the preservation of photos and yeah. you know documents and stuff and I thought you know we don't do enough of this of course being involved with Marta Cotera you know she archives everything and so um, even when I ran for city council every little piece of whatever I had she archived it and so um, yeah. now I understand you know why it was important to her yeah. I mean when I think about um, just for from my immediate family yeah. and they're wanting to uh, look at a family tree or look at what you know transpired with yeah. uh, certain individuals of the family uh, now I'm in that matriarchal position and our you know I still have my mom but you know who knows for how much longer so so Roy and I have kind of become the you know the core of of our families and so when things are going on, like a lot of traditional, you know, Latino families, it still comes back to Roy and I, you know, so what is it, you know, that we are lending to, uh, you know, to our, to yeah. our downline, you know, what yeah. you call your downline. And so, you know, I've got a great grandchild now that may not really get to know who I am. I mean, will get to know me as yeah. as a, a grandmother, but will not have been around to have experienced, you know, the the positions that I filled or the work that I did or the activity, not like my my grandchildren, my older grandchildren who who saw me run for city council, who saw me be an aide, who saw me work at uh, advocacy who went with me to community meetings and mm -hmm. understand you know the the importance of being involved in your community yeah and so yes those archives you know do become extremely important and those oral histories yeah. um, are really important in fact I'm doing some of that with uh, my uncles and aunts that are still alive on my dad's side of the mm. family because um, they were 18 children and now there's only nine of them and um, four of those sons were all fighting in World War II mm. and in different arms of the military mm -hmm. and no one has ever gotten their histories and so before we've lost um, we've lost two of them and um, I'm determined to get, you know, as much information as I can from them, if yeah. only for the family's um, sake, yeah. you know, because, you know, like, I wasn't around when my uncles were in the military, you know, yeah. Yeah. they came back home and started their families, and yeah. so even, uh, we even realized that some of their own children um, do, did not know, uh, you know, some of the the histories yeah. or or had knowledge of the experiences that they had while they were serving. Wow. It's, yeah, I think it's important. I collected oral histories of my grandparents mm -hmm. well, when I was in college. Mm -hmm. And I, you know, cherish those tapes, but I need to figure out how to get them from tape onto electronic format so mm -hmm. I can put them on my computer. Mm -hmm. But. Um, I like to go back and listen, especially now that they are all gone. Uh -huh. 
Yeah. Like, wow, I feel really lucky that I was able yes. to. Yes. I wish I had had that opportunity with my grandparents because yeah. I did a lot of research on my grandfather's, my mom, my maternal grandfather's uh, family, which has a Native Amer very Native American um, ancestry. What but Native American tribe do you know? He was Yaqui Apache. Oh, okay. And um, my grandmother had uh, ancestors that were came from the Seminole tribe. Mm -hmm. um, after they moved from Florida to Texas, mm. uh, that's where your buffalo soldiers came from. Mm -hmm. And so she has some uh, some ancestors that were part of that. But um, my grandfather was a sheep shearer, which is uh, a dying occupation. And I experienced that as a child because yeah. he would take me with him to the ranches all in the hill country mm -hmm. uh, when he would go to go yeah. uh, shear the sheep. And I got to see that, you know, firsthand. And my children will never know what that was yeah. like, or my grandchildren will never know what that was like. Yeah. You know, I, I'm trying to retrieve photos from some of my aunts about it, but, um, yeah. you know, to describe it is the best thing that I can do right now yeah. because there's, you know, talking to him. I. I can't tell you if that generator, that machine that they used was run on gas or was it electric. Yeah. Uh, I don't think it was electric because it was out in the middle of a, you know, near a barn or a ranch, in a ranch, so it had to have been gas. Yeah. But I know that um, once the machine started up and they hooked their, um, their little uh, shearing gear to this arm, uh, that connected up to it, it looked like it was electrical because, you know, it was clipping, you know, yeah, you know yeah. running through. So uh, to be able to ask those questions would be, uh, would be great. You can come in. <laughs> I'm going to watch uh, Marcus for a little bit. Oh, okay. She wants to go to movies and she ain't got nobody watching. Oh, cool. Okay. Okay, I'm going to go ahead and turn this off. Unless you want to no, say I'm, anything I'm else? I'm good, I'm good. Okay. And 